0: Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. Well, hello there, and welcome to Frankie Stenson and More. It's Thursday, February the 15th, and I am so happy to be here with all of you. Hey, we're here together. <laughs> uh, today, you're going to meet who I think is absolutely an amazing human being. Uh, he is a friend to pets and wildlife alike, and he offers the best in both Western and Eastern medicine when it comes to health care for your pets. Dr. Gary Richter is with me today. He was voted America's favorite vet, and he's the author of The Ultimate Pet Health Guide, Breakthrough Nutrition, and Integrative Care for Dogs and Cats. Now, let me tell you, he's not only certified as a DVM, uh, but he also got certified in veterinary Western herbal medicine. Ultimate hyperbaric medicine, chiropractic medicine, uh, acupuncture, and and like just so much more. He's the medical director of the Montclair Veterinary Hospital as well as the holistic veterinary care, and he offers acupuncture, herbal therapy, medical cannabis consultation, hyperbaric oxygen, chiropractic, as I said, pulse signal therapy, microcurrent therapies, and much, much more. He also, which I just love, is one of the co-founders of the Montclair Veterinary Hospital Pet and Wildlife Fund, which since its inception, this is so exciting, has donated more than $500,000 in medical care and supplies for rescued wildlife. How about that? Welcome.
1: <laughs> Look at you. Thank, you. Thank
0: you. Oh, how exciting. I, you know, I wanted to be a veterinarian uh, ever since I was like three or four years old. That was my goal, to be a vet. And then I lived on our, we moved to our family farm and my dad had promised me a horse and I got the first calf. And then mm-hmm. one day a vet came. And we had a couple of cows that had really long horns, and they weren't very nice cows, and they decided to take those horns off. Yeah. And I was there for that um, operation, let's call it. (laughs) It was not very pleasant.
1: No, it's not.
0: I kind of went, no, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to do that anymore. But it's still my happy place to be, like, surrounded by animals everywhere.
1: Sure. That's understandable.
0: Yeah. So you... I just love how how you are you know um, have developed this, this integration of of you know eastern and western, and so I want to know where did that come from? Like, where where did you get interested in that?
1: You know, it, it's it, I guess it comes from a number of places. Uh, I had some I had some experiences when I was in veterinary school where I had the opportunity to see uh, to see a, a very accomplished Chinese medical doctor work on a horse um, and, and really work what could only be described as a medical miracle, um, with this horse. And that was, I think that was probably my first real, uh, my first real exposure to something outside of the Western medical field. Um, but you know, after, after having been a veterinarian for a number of years, uh, you know, what I, what I found was that, there was a, there was a hard stop, if you will, as far as things that I could do for my patients. You know, if an animal had any given, any given specific diagnosis, there was a certain number of things that I could do with my Western medical education. And after that, there just wasn't anything left. Um, and quite honestly, I just didn't like telling people that they were out of options. Um, so, so what I did was, is I started looking for other options. And what I found was that there is a, that there's a world of of of, of medical therapy and, and you know very scientifically valid treatment out there that is just not part of the the normal Western medical paradigm and thus it's not taught in veterinary school or human medical school for that matter. Yeah. And that was really what led me down the pathway to to start to become educated in Chinese medicine and chiropractic and herbal therapy. And and you know, now that that's you know that, that that's all happened, uh, you know, the, the things that I'm able to treat, uh, and the, the, the quality of life that I'm able to maintain in my patients is so much better than it, than it ever used to be.
0: You must be a very curious person.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I'm always, you know, I mean, that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is really just, uh, you know, just trying to figure out how, how I can always do a better job, how I can improve. It's the, I mean, you know, it's one of the great things about, about being a doctor and practicing medicine is, is, is this is, this is not a profession that you could ever possibly master. Uh, there's always more to learn. There's always more to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's the problem right now in a lot of healthcare. You know, for the humanoid and, and and animal is is a lack of curiosity because they do tend to stop and they just well that's all that's it. You know, there's no curiosity about well why why do they have that? Let's let's work on this a little bit more and see sure. what we can come up with or just you know not being open to uh, other other therapies, which is mm-hmm. very sad. I think for a lot of doctors and and for, you know, people, you know, one of the things I'm sure that people want to know is end of life. So how do you know when it's time to say goodbye to your pet? Even, you know, quality of life and all of that. I had a German Shepherd, beautiful dog, got diabetes. Um, I gave him insulin twice a day. He was blind and he was okay with the blindness. And I think when he started, you know, his bowel started going in the house, that, that got a little bit upsetting for him. Sure. Um, and my vet had said to me, "You know, you probably kept him a year longer than other people would have." Mm-hmm. Not, that, I don't know if that was a compliment or not. But you know, I'm very sensitive to to the fact that I wanted him. Did he want to stay? I think you know, I got the right the timing right when he was about to go. But a lot of people, you know, is it too soon, too late? How do you know?
1: Yeah, you know, that's that that's that's maybe one of the most difficult decisions that 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 pet owners ultimately wind up having to make, and you know, and obviously it's all a very, very individual sort of, sort of decision, but the way that I, the way that I normally sort of talk with people about this is, 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 is really, it's a quality of life assessment. So, you know, it's, 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 it's looking at, at the dog or the cat or whatever animal it may be. Um, and really kind of looking at, you know, what are the things that they've done in their life that have been fun for them, that have given their, given them enjoyment, and compare that to where we are now. Um, so, you know, what are they, what are they doing now? You know, are they, are they still able to do any of that or are they at a point now where they're just really just sort of like sleeping and eating and existing? Um, and you know, couple that with, do we have, do we have a reasonable suspicion that they're in pain, that they're in discomfort? Um, and then, and then lastly, Uh, and I think this is the, this is the trickiest sort of philosophical question that people need to, need to consider is because we do have this, we do have this option with animals that we can, that we can euthanize them, that we can, we can give them a soft landing, if you will, rather than sort of letting things play out to the bitter end. You know, the question is, is would you rather have them go out a day early or a day late? Mm. Uh, you know, I think, I think as people, I think, you know, empirically, most of us would say we'd all rather go out a day early. Um, and that's a very easy conversation to have when it's not real, but then when you start talking about an actual life, it becomes a bit more of a difficult thing to think about. But what I can say is that, you know, clearly most people's natural tendency is to drag things on a little further than they should, because understandably we don't want to let go. Um, that said, after, after about 20 years of being a veterinarian, what I can tell you is, is that, you know, six months or a year or two years down the road, when you talk to people that have been through that, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for me to hear people say that in hindsight, looking back on it, they waited too long. I've never heard somebody come back to me and tell me that in looking back on it, they did it too soon um because it's just not our natural tendency to do so yeah. but at the end of the day it's 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 a it's an agonizing decision to make i mean i've made it for my own personal pets and i you know and i totally feel for anybody that's going through it and it's just something that that if it's at all possible you just try and make you just try and make the 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 most logical the most sensible decision that you can in the moment do you think that
0: you should treat cancer in pets like we do for humans
1: well, I think it very much depends on exactly what's going on. I mean, so, so clearly, you know, cancer is sort of the, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of, of the worst things that, sure. that, that, that animals or people can get. Um, you know, that said, uh, you know, one of the, one of the upsides of, of dealing with an animal that has a diagnosis like cancer is as long as they feel good, they don't care. You know, one of the things I frequently remind people is that is, you know, your dog or your cat, they live for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they wake up in the morning, they take stock of what they have and they move on. Uh, so, you know, never has there been a dog or a cat who formulated the the thought, why me? Self-pity right. is not in their repertoire. Uh, so because of that, you know, even though they have cancer, from their perspective, is fine. You know as long as we can keep them feeling good and their quality of life is good, even if we know that it 's a fairly short term, uh, I think that's absolutely fine and, and if there are if there are medical therapies and, and whether or not that's you know something on the more natural medicine side or chemotherapy surgery, radiation, what have you, if there are medical therapies that can that can significantly improve or maintain quality of life for a period of time. I think those are absolutely worth looking at and worth discussing. Clearly everybody needs to make a decision about what they feel is right for them. But, but, you know, I, I think that the, those options are out there for us and uh, I'm a, I'm always a big proponent of people making an informed decision. So I always tell people get all of the information you can and then make your choice. So that way, at least, you know, at least you know what all your options are.
0: Yeah. You know, I think one of the hardest things for me that I hear and, and a lot of people experience, and, and it's not your fault at all, um, is just the cost of, of care, you <clears> know, <throat> is, is my dog has to, I have to put him down because I can't afford the treatment. Sure. Which is yeah. very heartbreaking to hear. You know, just this week, I, I posted on, on Facebook, some, my son's friend came to me and said, can you help? Can you help my dog? You know, he, he was a rescue and his molars were, and this one vet said, he, he's got sepsis and his teeth have to go and all this. And then I said, would you please just take him to my vet? Cause I don't know. Like, I, I think that it's not quite right what they're telling you and the $4,000, 5000 you know, bill that they said might be more than that. So he did. And my vet said, you know what? He doesn't have sepsis and he doesn't have that. And any vet can do this. And I don't understand why he would send you to a, specialist and yada 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 so how do you know you know how do you know when it's right i mean insider information maybe but it's difficult and this was a young family with two little kids and you know i thought why would you do that to this young family like maybe he didn't know but
1: i think he did know well i mean i I mean obviously i don't know about the no you don't that situation specifically but what i can tell you is is that is that just about every veterinarian that you will ever run into is doing their job with sincerity and from the heart. Um, That's not to say that, that veterinarians are sometimes not wrong. Um, Just like, just like physicians are, you know, sometimes wrong. I mean, misdiagnoses get made. Um, People make recommendations that, you know, even though they're made with the best of intent, maybe aren't the best thing out there. So, so for starters, um, you know, I think whenever somebody hears something, from, from a medical professional of any kind that maybe doesn't sit quite right with them, get a second opinion. Um, you know, th- 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 there's there's no downside to getting a second opinion. Either either the second person is going to agree with the first and you'll have confidence, right. or you're going to get some better information out of the second person, and then you can make a different decision. So, I mean, but I think that- You don't
0: that mind if out. somebody comes <clears throat> and asks you that?
1: Oh, gosh, absolutely not. Um, you know, I, my my feeling has always been, there's really no room for pride in medicine, and if there's somebody out there who can do a better job than me by then by all means i'm going to send you to that person I think you're an extremely special person <laughs>
0: I really do you well, are I- you're very you are unique in unto yourself um, let 's talk about the different breeds for a moment because. You know, I've got a golden now, and I know that goldens are prone to cancer. Mine doesn't have cancer, thank God. Knock on wood, anyway. But he—he he is a very old soul, and always has been. And at five years old, he's getting all gray. It seems to me he's like in an accelerated aging for some reason. Um, uh-huh. First time I've ever had this breed, um, but I think that there are breeds that that you know certain things are common to them, uh, sure. and, and and so let's just talk about that for a moment. Boxers have you know certain things, and different mm-hmm. breeds have different things. So um, large and small, little dogs tend to live longer.
1: You know, that that's a, it's a bit of a generalization, but yes, um, smaller dogs have a tendency to be a little bit longer lived than the larger dogs. And certainly the really big dogs, you know, Great Danes, Mastiffs, these sorts of things, they do, they do tend to kind of go on the shorter side. So what, why is that? Like, you know i mean it's 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 a lot to do with with metabolism and and just stress on the body okay um you know interestingly from a uh you know from a from a genus and species standpoint uh you know a miniature poodle is the exact same species as as a 200 pound great dane um you know they're almost genetically identical um but <laughs> at the same time you could imagine um that there's a lot more stresses put on the body You know, I mean, you know, think about it from the standpoint of like, you know, your average, your average five foot something person. And then you take somebody who's seven feet tall and weighs 350 pounds. That person has a lot more stress on their body, on their, on their bones, on their joints, on their heart. Um, And it just has a tendency, it has a tendency to wear on you. Um, And that in some cases will lead to a shorter lifespan. That's certainly not to say that there aren't a lot of things that we can do um, from a preventative standpoint to really lengthen these guys' lifespan. Um, it's just a lot of that takes it takes it, it takes a preemptive effort. If we wait until they're sick and they're having problems, then in many cases we're we're already behind the eight ball.
0: Yeah, you know, when I was reading your book, and especially the nutritional, you know, section, which I really want to delve into with you. Um, One of the things that really hit me was, my dog is, he's about 110 pounds, and he's very big. He's always been a very big golden. He's bigger than most of the other goldens I see. But they tell me he's a little overweight. And, and I've had him on diet, food, fish, you know, which is not that healthy now that I read your book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew that, but it didn't hit, right? I'm going, like, oh, but it's whitefish from Northern Ontario. It's probably okay, you know? Um, but so let's, let's talk about the diet in the, in the larger breeds to start with. Um, what can we do to keep them healthy? What, what should I be feeding? And what mm-hmm. should they look like? Should he have his ribs showing?
1: Right, like, right. So yeah. so, yeah, I mean, for starters, 110 pounds is a big golden. Um, big. even if he is a little overweight, that's, that's a, that's a big dog for a golden just in general. But, but I think the way, the way to begin to look at nutrition in, in any, in any animal and any person is for starters, uh, you know, we want our pets, we want our pets to eat as close to a fresh whole food diet as possible. So, you know, that's not. That's not any real controversial or, or, or groundbreaking statement. I mean, I think that we all know for our own health that we should not be eating highly processed foods and the more fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, and things that we're eating, the more healthy we are likely to be. Uh, and that is absolutely the case with dogs and cats and any animal. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, our bodies are the way that they are because this is how we evolved to be. Um, and nobody evolved eating food out of a bag or out of a can. True. So, so that's where we have to start. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to pet food, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is dry dog food and canned dog food only exists for one reason. And that reason is our convenience. Right. Um, it is, you know, it's definitely not what, what, you know, we would describe as ideal nutrition. So that's, that's where we want to start is fresh whole food diets. Um, so a fresh whole food diet for a dog or a cat, uh, there's a number of ways that 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 could be accomplished. Um, these days, there are quite a few companies that are making uh, fresh diets. So it could either be frozen, uh, something that you buy frozen, frozen raw food, frozen cooked food. There's companies now that are taking fresh food diets and then they're freeze drying them. So at very low temperatures, they're basically sucking the moisture out of them so that they're shelf stable. So that way you don't have to worry about freezer space, but those diets are still very, very healthy. And then to go one step further, if people are so inclined to do it, uh, you can also make food for your pets at home. Um, You know, you absolutely can cook for them at home. The the one caveat is, is if you're going to make food at home, it's really important that you work off of a properly balanced recipe so that over the long haul, you know that they're getting all the nutrition that they need. That's the worry.
0: And how Uh, much do you give them?
1: Yeah, and and you know, I mean, you can you absolutely can calculate, you can do the calculations of how much you need to feed them based on calories and 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 I'm sure okay. you saw that in the book. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not somebody that wants to do all that math, uh, honestly, feed them what looks right. And if they're gaining weight, feed them less. And if they're losing weight, feed them more. It's you know, it's 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 just that it, it's really just that easy. You don't have to make it you don't have to make it a science project, uh, right. you know, unless unless you're just that kind of you know precise person. Uh, but but yeah, like I say, I mean, it, what about picky a eaters? <laughs> you know I what? have
0: the pickiest dog in the world. Sure, like, honest to God, you know, you give him a cookie. No, he's not going to eat a cookie. He is yeah. not going to eat pork. Gives him diarrhea. I know that because mm-hmm. I've given him a little piece off my plate. Um, sure. You know, he's not going to. People go. He's not going to eat that. No, he's not going to eat that. He he's right. just like turns his nose up at everything. That's so, a very
1: unusual golden retriever. He
0: is. He is. And yeah. I see, you know, my son's dog, you know, carrot, you want a carrot? You want a cellar? You want this? You want that? He'll eat yeah. garbage eaters. My chihuahua is walking around. She's like a Hoover vacuum. Uh huh. Whatever falls on the ground. But he's sure. got a very delicate stomach, always has. He used to get right. diarrhea all the time as a puppy until mm-hmm. I found a food that, you know, eventually it was from. So it seemed to be the only thing he could keep in him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he does love sweet potato and he loves squash. Absolutely okay. loves like that turban squash. He would eat uh-huh. that every day.
1: Right. So, you know, what do you feed him? Well, I mean, the good news is, is if we're look, you know, once we start looking at these fresh whole food diets, one of the first things that people find out is that those foods tend to be really, really palatable. I mean, that's not super surprising. I mean, if you look at a plate of fresh food versus you know, a pile of little brown nuggets that came out of a bag. I mean, again, I mean you don't have to be a nutritionist to figure out which they're more likely to go for. Um so most dogs and cats really like fresh food, so that's a big plus. Um and then you know for the ones that have sensitive stomachs, uh interestingly, sometimes they just flat out do better on fresh food because a lot of things happen when food is processed that actually can cause problems digestively uh, as opposed to fresh food. And secondarily If, 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 you know, if a dog like your dog legitimately has some dietary sensitivities and some dietary issues, then it may be just a function of figuring out what the right combination of nutrients are for that individual. So for example, in your case, perhaps pork is not the way to go. Um, But you know, if he does okay with say beef or chicken or lamb or whatever the the protein may be, then that's that, you know, that's perhaps a better way to look. And should you like switch it up? That's a great question. I mean, I think in 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 a perfect world, rotating through foods and rotating through proteins is a really good thing because it's going to give them a different spectrum of nutrients. Uh, you know, again, if we look at the way dogs and cats and people were evolved to eat, certainly none of us evolved eating the exact same thing every day for the long term. Um, so, you know, if you have a, if you have a pet that, that is, is, is fine with you occasionally rotating their food through, I think it's a really, really good idea. Um, there are animals out there that have such narrow dietary restrictions because of sensitivities that sometimes that's tricky. And in those animals, you know, if even, even if you can't do it, then, then so be it. You're still feeding them a, a really good quality fresh food diet. But if it is possible for people to rotate through proteins, rotate through ingredients from time to time, uh, that could only be a good thing.
0: Like I noticed that you, you, one of your recipes has quinoa, Uh quinoa. And, and is that a protein?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. It's a little bit of both. I mean, quinoa clearly has protein in it. It also has really good complex carbohydrates in it. I think, um, in the, in the technical scientific sense, quinoa is not a grain. Um, but, but you know, that, that, that brings up a, a point that there's, you know, there's a lot of talk in the sort of in the marketplace now about grain-free foods, grain-free this. You know, I think grains have somewhat been demonized a little bit in the market because it was a good, it it was a good PR move. Um, You know, it's not that grains are by definition bad for dogs. Um, Certainly what we don't want to be feeding them is a lot of high carbohydrate and simple carbohydrate foods. So like, White rice or corn or wheat or these sorts of things, um, because that's just a lot of, you know, empty calories per se. What about
0: avoiding soy? Should they avoid soy too?
1: Again, I mean, soy as a food ingredient is not in and of itself a bad thing, but one thing that I would say is, well, while every ingredient in dog food absolutely does not have to be meat based, um, I do feel very strongly that their protein should be meat based. So, dogs that are using soy as a dog food using soy as a protein source, unless there's a very specific medical necessity for that, that that's that's not a direction I would normally choose to go. Now,
0: I know that you said that you liked the raw diet that you thought dogs really thrive on it, and I did try to give my dog raw food, didn't Uh like it at all. Okay, and uh, but I know people who are giving dogs like chicken carcasses with in the bone and everything is it's all there, right? Uh Um, but then you know. The vet, the new vet, are going. Don't give them bones. They get splinters in their throat. Oh my god! Like oh my right. god! Like my, my dogs have always had a bone their whole lives. Right. You know, 50, sixty years I've had dogs. <laughs> you yeah. know, they've had bones, and now they're not allowed to have them. Is it like a case of? Uh, you something know,
1: happened to one. There, there's a there, there's there's some controversy within the veterinary field as far as raw uh, raw diets go. Um, you know, many, many veterinarians would advise people against feeding raw diets. Um, in truth, there's not a lot of science behind that, that position. Um, you know, clearly there are concerns about raw meat and bacterial contamination and that's
0: the only thing for me that.
1: Yeah. I mean, and and the two things that I would say to that is number one, um, dogs and cats tend to be way more resistant to bacterial contamination than we are. Um, so, so they tend to do okay with it. And secondly, when you look at some of these well-made commercially prepared raw food diets, they are made so well that they are literally certified pathogen free before they leave, before they leave the manufacturing facility. So in truth, that raw meat that you buy in the pet store for your dog is far safer than that package of chicken that you buy in the grocery store um, which is almost guaranteed to be covered with salmonella and E. coli. Um, so, you know, so in, in that sense, uh, you know, dogs, many, many dogs do great on raw food. It is not by definition, the end all be all. That's what you have to feed your dog. Um, there are a lot of dogs that do great on cooked whole food diets and that's absolutely fine. Um, and to answer your question about the bones, um, my recommendation for people with bones is I I don't have a problem with people feeding their dog bones, but they should be raw bones. Um, And the reason why I say that is raw bones are softer and the dogs can chew through them. Uh, So what will happen is, is as they're chewing through them, it's actually cleaning their teeth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the bigger concern is like, for example, when you go to the pet store and they have like all those bones, like sitting in the bin, um, those bones are cooked and cooked bones are incredibly hard. And it's very, very common to see dogs who have broken teeth mm-hmm. from, from chewing on bones and then you have to go pull teeth and, you know, and, and everything that comes with that. So, you know, if you're going to give a dog a bone, it's far better to give them a, an appropriately sized raw bone. Let them, let them crunch through it and eat it. They can, they can a marrow absorb bone. Yeah, it's fine. it's fine. And like I say, it's, it'll, it'll keep their teeth clean in, yeah. in addition to everything else. Well,
0: what about, I want to talk about teeth for a moment. Um, one of the thoughts, you know, my stepson has a little Chihuahua and he, he goes, well, I really like her to have, you know, the hard food to clean her teeth because Mm -hmm. she doesn't really, you know, if, if you're only eating soft food all the time, what are you cleaning your teeth? Now, do we have to brush our dog's teeth?
1: Sure. So, you know, if, 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 if somebody could make a single argument in favor of dry dog food. That might be the one. Is that it keeps their teeth a little cleaner than if they were eating like a fresh food or a canned food diet. That said, relying on food to keep our pets' teeth clean is just—it's just an inadequate sort of step to make. And and all of the other myriad health reasons that make fresh food better really really outweigh that. So so to answer your question, um, in a perfect world, yes, we all should be brushing our dog's teeth. Again, in a perfect world, it should be done on a daily basis. Um, so it takes about 48 hours in a dog for plaque to mineralize into tartar. So if technically speaking, if you're brushing their teeth every day, then you're really, really going to keep the tartar formation to a minimum, and you're going to keep their gums healthy. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, living in the real world, um, I fully understand that not everybody is going to brush their dog's teeth, and I fully understand that not every dog is going to let you brush their teeth. So, There are lots of other things that can be done. Uh, We were just talking about raw bones. So maybe a raw bone like once a week to help them clean their teeth. There are um, additives, like all natural additives that you can put in their drinking water um, that can help reduce the amount of plaque and tartar. Um, Under the right set of circumstances, a non-anesthetic dental cleaning can be beneficial for dogs. um, But I want to really stress that it has to be the right circumstances it should be done under veterinary supervision. This is not something that should get done in, in a pet store or a grooming salon. Um, and not every animal is a candidate for a non-anesthetic cleaning because at some point they they very likely are going to need the full anesthesia procedure with the dental x-rays and the deep cleaning and everything. But using a non-anesthetic cleaning as part of a larger dental care plan um, can be very beneficial for these So guys. should your dog have a
0: deep clean once a year or something? or
1: It very much depends on the dog. I mean, most dogs certainly would not require a full anesthesia dental cleaning on an annual basis, unless they're just one of these unlucky souls that just genetically have terrible teeth. Um, but, uh, you know, how frequently a procedure like that needs to be done certainly has a lot to do with what they're eating, what sort of preventative care people are doing at home, and and to a certain extent just just their genetics, because just like with people, some dogs just have worse teeth than others.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to one more. I was just thinking about don't do it in a, in a salon. What about the anal glands? What is it about the anal glands? Do you have to have express them? Does that is this something that's for real or what?
1: Well, I mean, you certainly, so anal anal glands are clearly a real thing. I mean, you know, evolutionarily speaking, it's a scent marking organ so that, you know, you know, one dog knows what other dog came there before them. Um, The large, large majority of dogs, their anal glands are sort of a no maintenance kind of thing. They just deal with it on their own. Mm -hmm. Every now and again, you'll get a dog that, that might get an anal gland impaction or an anal gland infection, and that becomes an issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, but you know, my personal feelings as far as anal glands is it's one of those, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of things. Um, because if you are expressing or squeezing their anal glands frequently, potentially you're going to cause irritation and inflammation and maybe that leads to a problem. So -hmm. if they're not having an issue with it, I would, I would suggest people just, just leave it be. When they're scooting their bum, what is, is that that, it, can be, that can be an indication of an anal gland issue. It's not, it, it could also be allergies, um, depending on where you live. It, sometimes that's also a sign that they could have um, some sort of parasite, like worms or something. So that's definitely something to check with your veterinarian about.
0: So let, let's, let's go over the signs of, of um, stress. I was reading an article that mm-hmm. the other day that, uh, I didn't know this, that when your dog licks its lips, it's, it's a sign of stress.
1: It can be, can be. Um, Yeah. Um, So, I mean, dogs and stress, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels there to people in the sense that some people are just naturally more high strung than others. Same thing goes with dogs. Some of that varies by just individual personality, although without a doubt, some breeds tend to run more high strung than others as well. Um, You know, but, but dogs can manifest stress in, in, any number of ways, uh, you know, ranging from, as you say, sort of, you know, licking behavior. Um, you know, there's, there's separation anxiety with dogs. So dogs that completely freak out when people leave them at home alone. Um, there's dogs that don't do well with strange people or with dogs they don't know. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 it's incredibly variable from, from one individual to the next. Well,
0: let me tell you about the dog that can't be home alone. (laughs) <laughs> my son, my other son, has a dog who cannot be home alone. He's a shepherd husky uh-huh. mix, uh-huh. and ever since he was a puppy, they tried to crate train him, and yeah. he got his head stuck in the bars when he was a puppy, and he, and, yeah. you know, his mouth was bleeding, and so they said, "Okay, well, that's probably not a good idea." But they got him another crate, and they got him another crate, and then they finally left him alone. And they've done the lavender coming out. They've done all kinds of, you know, the thunder shirts. They've yeah. done just about everything that you can think of. And then a couple, a couple of weeks ago, he decided that he was going to get into the freezer now and he opened up the freezer door, took out all of the meat, um, <laughs> took shrimp, put it, spread it all over the bed. Every day he takes the shoes and he brings them up to the bed. And he spreads all the clothes and does it, this whole thing. Okay. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So smart. Okay. Yeah. So they said, okay, that's it. We like every day he wrecks a trim. He does like hundreds of dollars mm-hmm. worth of food. So they got, apparently there's a crate that's supposed to be for really high anxiety dogs that they cannot hurt themselves. They can't get out of this crate. It's very, very expensive. My son bought this crate the first day, he put the dog in the crate. They, they started training him every night to go in the crate, and just sit there uh-huh. with food or whatever. But then the first day they actually left him there when they went to work. Yeah. He, uh, he broke his, he broke his, his eye tooth out. So right. he just had surgery and had that removed a couple of days sure. ago. So, they had started to give him a spray and, and other things because they're going like, we have to leave our dog. We have to go to work uh-huh. and they love their dog and they don't want to put their dog down. He's only, you know, four years old, sure. uh, but you can't have your home destroyed and your food destroyed every single day. Clearly not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What, is there another step that they could do?
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a number of things. And, 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 you know, I think whenever you look at sort of like an anxiety issue with a dog, uh, again, it's sort of beneficial to think about it through the lens of a person with an anxiety disorder. So, you know, I mean, you know, when we look at the things that, that we do for people with anxiety disorders, um, you know, there's medication that, yes. that people can take. And certainly there are, there are medications both natural and, and pharmaceutical that you can put a dog on to help with anxiety. But, but it's really important to remember that you are never going to be able to purely medicate this away,
0: and you don't uh, want to have your dog medicated all day. You don't. Want well, yeah, daughter. I
1: mean, the goal is obviously <laughs> you don't want them. You don't want them just sedated, but but like again, I mean, if you look at a person with an anxiety disorder, there's no pill that's going to fix that. Yeah. Um, you know what? What is going to get that person or that dog the farthest down the road um, is going to be therapy. Um, so, therapy for a person, some sort of behavioral training um, for a dog. Um, because what we want to try and do is start to desensitize them to the triggers, uh, that, that get them in a panic. Because the problem is, is once they're in a panic like that, there's no stopping it. Um, you know, it's kind of like if you've ever had an experience with a person having a panic attack, you cannot talk that person down from that, that that's, you know, it's done at that point. Um, and it's, and it's really, it's really a tricky thing. And, and, you know, separation anxiety is a very, very difficult issue to deal with. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, what you can't do is you can't just push them through it and hope they just get over it. So, I mean, the, you know, the advice that I would give to somebody would be, um, definitely work very closely with a trainer definitely talk with your veterinarian about whether or not there is some sort of some sort of either 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 medication or supplement that could Yeah, be- they were
0: giving him a medication. I can't remember what it was, but I know that there was a spray that they had to do every night and there was uh-huh. uh, it wasn't Valium, but there was something that they were giving him and sure. it did seem they said it did seem to he seemed calmer. And that's yeah. when I thought we, we can leave him in the crate now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the best thing that you can hope for with medication is that it calms them down to the point where they can start to accept and listen to training, um, you know, rather than just being in a total panic.
0: One trainer said to have a, you know, a, a collar on that shocked them when they got when they started to, you know, cry or yip or whatever, to, yeah. just to shock him out of the behavior, and but they were worried that he would I be doing it so much, that work. they were no, they would be like doing it all day yeah. long and be shocked. I don't
1: day. think that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, I didn't the like the other that option. Idea. The other easy, uh, you know, easy option is is depending on where they live, if there's like some sort of like uh, like daycare service or something that they can take the dog, and that way the dog can instead of it being a terrible thing uh, when they go out of town, now the dog gets to go play with gets to go play with other dogs and all of a sudden it's fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he goes to daycare once or twice a week, but they can't afford it. They're a young family having kids, you know, just the sure. first baby. So they can't really afford yeah. daycare every day. But right. um, when he is well exercised and they tried to do the, the treadmill mm. before they go to work. Right. Cause right. He, he he got scared of it. He didn't want to go on it. Um, sure. But you know, that's, that's another story, but I just wondered if there was something else for them because it, it, he is a beautiful little dog in but he's destructo.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, it's tricky. Those, those are real tough to deal with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Let's talk about cannabis. Is he a candidate for cannabis?
1: He very well could be, um, you know, I a mean, CBD? You just, you know, <laughs> just like with people who have anxiety, PTSD, what have you, mm-hmm. um, cannabis can be a very, very beneficial part of kind of a larger, you know, a larger medical plant. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we're, Classically speaking, if we're looking at stress and anxiety, you're looking at a kind of a more C B D dominant uh sort of preparation. But uh but yeah, there's there's just an incredibly wide range of, of medical uses.
0: So in the veterinary industry now there there is there is a cannabis um they, they would get a prescription for cannabis, your dog, let's say. Is that or how is it administered through oil or?
1: It, well, generally speaking, it, usually it's done either as a liquid, like an oil, or there are companies out there that are making like treats Pellet, that have yeah. CBD in them, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, I mean, cannabis on a federal level is still illegal. Um, so nobody can sort of quote, prescribe cannabis per se. Um, and and honestly, you know, here in California, there is a a very shall we say, lively debate going on right now um, about about the veterinarian's role as it pertains to medical cannabis. Uh, So, you know, we're in a funny spot right now in California where our veterinary medical board here has told the veterinarians in the state of California that if we recommend cannabis for our patients, we put our licenses at risk. Wow. Um, But the flip side of that, of course, is that as of January 1st in California, Cannabis is recreationally legal here, which means anybody over the age of 21 can buy it. There's more and more products coming out on the market that are specifically labeled for pets. And we're in this kind of funny situation where the only people in the entire state that are forbidden to give you as a pet (laughs) owner (laughs) advice are the veterinarians. So you're so, going
0: to blow smoke into your dog? Is so that it's,
1: it, it's, it's, it's kind of a nutty thing. And what you wind up with is people who are being forced to get medical advice from somebody that works in a pet store, somebody that works in a cannabis dispensary. It's it's, it's a ridiculous situation. It kind of
0: scares me. Like my, you know, one of my, my sons said, oh, I think you know, it would be really good for my dog. I got a lot of kids. And, and I go, well, I don't know. Like, How would you even know how much they could have? Like, What if they went on some weird trip? I don't know. It kind of bothers me a little bit
1: like, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, and it's, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, you know, to me, you, you know, I look at cannabis like I would look at any other medication in the sense that if we're going to be safe and we're going to be effective, then we need to know exactly what we're giving and we need to know exactly what dose we're giving. Mm-hmm. It's not just a like, Oh, just give them some of this and see what happens. Um, you know, it is as, you know, I think the, there's a, there's a, a misconception, uh, that 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 cannabis is a completely harmless thing. Yeah. Um and, and you know, to me, you know, you it, it seems like you have you have people simultaneously making the argument that cannabis is completely harmless and cannabis is this unbelievably effective medicine. And and to me, I don't think that those two arguments can exist in the same space. Uh you know, if it if it if it has profound physiologic effects then there are going to be potential downsides if it's done improperly.
0: You know, I can tell you from my own, because I, I do suffer with severe chronic pain. I had a prescription for, for cannabis, didn't do anything for me, nothing. So you know what, like it, it's going to be individually based anyway. Yeah. I did see treats with CBD at the pet store the other day. Oh. I live in Canada uh-huh. and I did see, you know, some treats in there. Um, the bag was about $19 for a little bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was quite surprised to see it and I was, you know, cuz your dog could be any size. Like how do they know?
1: I would agree and that's why um literally just in the past week um we've 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 begun the process of getting um a bill entered into the the legislature in Sacramento um to pass some legislation that would allow veterinarians to be part of this discussion without having to fear for their licenses because you know, the situation as it stands right now is that there is no guidance for people. Um, and it's a very dangerous landscape.
0: What's happening with the vets in Colorado?
1: So it's interesting. Um, you know, as, as, as you're probably aware, I mean, there's 29 states in, in, in the U.S. That have, that have cannabis laws of some sort or another, except for some reason that, that, that nobody's ever explained. California is the only state that I'm aware of where the Veterinary Medical Board decided that they were going to let veterinarians know that if they uttered the word cannabis in front of a pet owner, they were going to get themselves into a lot of trouble. So most of the other states, all of the other states, they're just, they're just letting veterinarians do their job and be veterinarians, which is, in my opinion, what they ought to be doing. Um, but because our Veterinary Medical Board took the stand that they chose to take, now we're in this position where we have to take some sort of legal action to, to fix So
0: surprising from such a liberal state.
1: Right. One would, think. Yeah, nobody, one like would I say, think, nobody has been able to explain this one to me.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, you know, they're doing the same thing here in medical care with, you know, telling doctors that they can't prescribe narcotics anymore or whatever, and not sure. allowing them to use their, you know, their brains or whatever else and their knowledge to say, you know what, I think this person might need something. Agreed. But you know, Agreed. you've got people who, who don't have a medical license making
1: these rules. So, uh, uh-huh.
0: A lot no, of times right
1: that that is often the case you know people <laughs> just don't understand how this works yeah um, and they're making the rules so we're we're working on getting that fixed
0: wow that's crazy your book your yes. book uh beautiful book fantastic book um Thank you. covers the gamut really does uh, mm-hmm. I, I think um what else is in that book that, that we should talk about uh, let me look at your at my notes here for a second, but maybe you can, you're probably a lot more, I only sure. read it once, you've read it so, a thousand times.
1: <laughs> about a thousand times, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the, the way that I sort of approached uh, writing the book was I wanted people, number one, to have a really good understanding of, of nutrition from the perspective of both preventative nutrition and therapeutic nutrition, so how to keep your pets healthy, um, and if they do have some sort of illness, how to use food as medicine. Yeah. Um, so, so that was, that was really step one. And then step two was to, to, to introduce people to the concept of integrative medical care. So, um, you know, so how do we take the best that Western medicine has to offer and the best that holistic and alternative, alternative medicine have to offer and combine those two things together to get a greater effect than the sum of the two. Uh, so, so what I did was, is I, 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 you know, after introducing these topics, I went through just about every every major medical condition and body system that I frequently see problems with in my office: kidney disease, liver disease, diabetes, you know, cancer, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. uh, and and laid out for people how are these diseases diagnosed. Um, you know, how are they treated from a Western medical perspective? How can they be treated from, from a, a natural medicine perspective? And and how to integrate everything together. So if you, for example, have a dog that has liver disease, there's a whole chapter in this book that's going to give you a roadmap of what to expect, what to look for, and what your treatment options are.
0: Yeah, I think you did a really good job there. And I think it's really important um, because you didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater on Western medicine. And you said, you know what? are there's a need for Western medicine and then there's a need for Eastern or, you know, natural medicine. And, yeah. and, you know, if your dog's got this, he's going to need this kind of medicine. And if that can't, if, if you've hit that road, yeah. let's go over here and, and see how, what's going to happen. Because I think sometimes people get so, oh, it has to be natural, has to be natural that, sure. that they may not be getting the best benefit if they had
1: gone the other route. Agreed. And and, and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of Western medicine. I mean, I practice it every day. Um, because you know, the, you know, the reality is, is that, that there are things that Western medicine can treat that natural medicine cannot and vice versa. You know, what I frequently tell people is if you're walking across the street and you get hit by a bus, you do not need an acupuncturist in that moment. Um, if you're still around a few weeks later, um, then probably an acupuncturist would be a really wonderful thing uh i think the 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 wonderful synergy about all of it is is the places where western medicine falls short and does not have options are frequently the places where natural medicine shines mm-hmm. uh you know the western medicine has problems with chronic disease you know where you know as, as 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 western doctors were really good at treating infection and trauma and broken bones. And if something needs surgery, we're really good at that. But when you start looking at things like, you know, chronic inflammatory disease, chronic pain, things that just nag and won't go away, that's, that's where Western medicine doesn't really have a whole lot of good options. And that's where, that's where natural medicine just absolutely shines. So there's this, there's this beautiful integration between the two, um, as long as people are willing to just look at both sides of the coin.
0: How many how many practices that you know of have a hyperbaric chamber?
1: Uh I mean I would guess that there's probably across the country, I would say give or take fifty. Maybe. Really? Yeah. I mean not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. And most of them are on the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and you would use that I have a friend actually in England who's
1: who's getting treated with hyperbaric. Um, medicine, but what would you use it for? So we use hyperbaric oxygen for a number of things. Um, you know, sort of it's, it's, it's more conventional, traditional uses would be for um, chronic non-healing wounds. Um, it can be very, very beneficial for some sort of really uh, severe inflammatory conditions. So whether or not it's like spinal trauma, brain trauma. Um, we once treated a dog um, that had a black widow spider bite. Um, that responded very well. Um, we don't have a whole lot of, um, venomous snakes out here where I live, but, um, but there's a lot of case reports of animals being treated after snake bites that have done extremely well. Um, and going beyond that, there are, there are other potential benefits of hyperbaric medicine that maybe go a little bit outside the conventional therapy perspective. Um, there are some protocols looking at treating cancer. Uh, using not hyperbaric medicine alone, but as part of a larger treatment, uh, protocol. Um, you know, we can use it for animals that have, um, that have gastrointestinal issues, that have liver problems. Just about any, any medical condition that would be described as having, you know, as, as partially being caused by either poor circulation, um, or poor oxygenation of the tissues is, is very likely to respond well.
0: How, how, Um, alike are we like, I mean, they say the, you know, dog and human, let's say they they say with cancer that if you know, you want to try to be having more alkaline than acidic, um, you know, Mm -hmm. blood, blood and, and stuff like that. Would the same be true for a dog? On some
1: level? Yes. The same is true for a dog. I mean, you know, cancer pathology in dogs is not dramatically different than that as it is in people. Uh, you know, realize that, uh, you know, dogs and cats clearly have a different nutritional profile than people do. So, I mean, dogs, uh, you know, they're, they're much more sort of carnivorous than we as people are. So their diets tend to be a little bit more acidic naturally, whereas we as people are designed a little more towards alkaline. Um, so, so there are some differences there, but I mean, that certainly does come back to the earlier conversation about nutrition. Um, because I mean, if you're worried about body pH, then really all, then really what we need to be talking about is food.
0: Yeah. I mean, when your dog goes and eats grass, long grass, not grass, grass, my dog likes long grass. Does that mean that their stomach's upset or they dislike you know, there's, there's
1: a number of possibilities. I mean, they will sometimes do that if they have an upset tummy, um, you know, but conversely, so for example, here in, in, in the San Francisco Bay area right now, um, it's getting around springtime and there 's a lot of new grass coming up, and a lot of dogs find that fresh spring grass is just irresistible. Um, I guess it tastes really good <laughs> if you 're a dog, and some dogs, quite frankly, are just grazers. Um, mm. you know remember that i mean dogs dogs are omnivores I mean they definitely lean towards being carnivorous, but they are omnivores by design and and so eating grass on some level is a natural behavior for them
0: you know I, I went into my dog 's daycare the other day and there's a big salad sitting there in in one of the windows <laughs> and somebody sent their dog lunch and it was salad. And I'm like, what? are you kidding me? <laughs> 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 Literally it was cucumbers and lettuce and tomatoes and all this. And Sounds Yeah, good. that's what she sends. Yeah. I'm like, wow. My dog wouldn't eat that in a million years. I couldn't right. get that in him. No that's way. Funny. No, how, no matter how hungry he is. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool when, when they do it, but uh I don't know. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. And I can, I, I put um, the video of starfish up on on the good radio network site and just tell us, tell the folks here about, about starfish and and the treatment that you gave, because I think it's just an absolutely beautiful. um, It just shows, you know, how, how, how far you're going to go.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, starfish is a, is a great example of, of how, complementary care you know literally saved a life where western medicine you know had had nothing to offer so starfish was a puppy that came to us who has a a a condition called swimmer's syndrome um swimmer's syndrome is a little bit vague in in its causes but it's a it's a developmental uh abnormality where essentially the dogs is her legs were all sort of splayed out to the side and she literally just could not get her legs underneath her to stand um So, uh, hence the name starfish because she was, you know, but, um, but, uh, so it was kind of adorable. Um, but anyway, um, you know, this dog was rescued from the shelter and the rescue group initially took it to an orthopedic surgeon, a surgeon that I know very, very well, have worked with for many years. She's an outstanding surgeon. And, and I later talked to her about this on the phone and she told me that she was literally holding starfish in the palm of her hand, little tiny dog holding this dog in her hand, looking at it and trying to decide whether or not she should send it to our hospital uh, or just recommend that they put the dog down because she honestly, in her heart, believed that it was hopeless. Um, And mind you, again, this is an excellent surgeon and somebody that I've worked with for years and years and years. And ultimately she decided to just send it. Um, And she sent it to us. Uh, She sent starfish to us. And, and, you know, we began we began a course of, of physical therapy, basically, um, of doing various techniques, many of which you'll, you can see on the video, of ways that we sort of got her legs underneath her and helped her start building up strength. Um, and literally within a matter of weeks, this dog was walking. Um, and at this it's point, now that we're, oh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And now that we're a few months down the road, like if you saw this dog walking down the street, if you were really observant, you might notice that her gait is a little off; it's not exactly perfect, but but at a casual glance, you would never know. The only thing that would strike you is she is an absolutely stunning dog. She really is. She's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful dog. dog. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a, you know that's a, what percentage of do- like I've never heard of this. So what percentage of dogs? It's are pretty uncommon. It's it? not. It's not something that you see very frequently. Um, although I will say that that you know animals that come to us who have zero treatment options from a Western medical standpoint and we're able to make them better. That's actually quite common. Yeah. That we see a lot.
0: So in your head, you'd never treated this before. No. But you heard about it and your brain just starts going, I think I can do this and this and this, and maybe we can do that. Sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you start thinking about, okay, you know, what can we do to help this, to help this dog? I mean, I, I had the, the great benefit of one of our um, one of our um, canine rehab technicians um, is just, has, it, she's just an unbelievable wealth of knowledge um, and, and experience. Um, and, and she had a lot to add to the discussion. Uh, and, and, you know, she, she had treated a couple of swimmers dogs in, in, in her past um, and, and like I say, we were just able to put together a, a, a regimen for, for starfish and, and literally could not have worked out better.
0: That's like the best story ever. <laughs> I just love it. And I just love it that, you know, you will go to the ends of the earth to, to help these animals. And, and that's phenomenal. Just before we go, um, tell us about the nonprofit.
1: That- sure. Um, you know, so our nonprofit, the Pet and Wildlife Fund, uh, we started that uh, quite a number of years ago uh, as a means of raising money both to help um, injured and orphaned wildlife and also to help rescued pets uh, in the Bay Area, uh, you know, it, the bay Area being a fairly population dense area, we do have a lot of a lot of orphan pets a lot of animals that need rescue and and we do see some of them um come through our office and and you know in in, in part because of the pet and wildlife fund we're able to provide those animals with the kind of medical services that they really need um at a, at a discounted price for the for the rescue groups uh, so that's you know it, it's it's one of those things from a you know from a standpoint of of community involvement. Um, it's really important for us as an organization to be a member of our community and to, and to, to do everything that we can to give back. And, you know, fortunately we've uh, we've had a lot of opportunity to be able to do that.
0: You know, I don't have another hour to list all of the boards and and societies that you belong to and that you help <laughs> with. And I mean, like, it's just, you're like to oh, list like this long. It's fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank um, you. Your book is called the ultimate pet health guide. Yep. Go to Amazon and grab yourself a copy if you're a pet owner because it's fantastic and it's a real Bible, like it's really a really great, a great um, book to have. Thank and you. your website, tell folks how they can reach out to you.
1: So uh, the website if, you're, if you want to learn more about the book, the website is drgaryrichter.com. Um If you want to learn more about holistic medicine in general, um, uh, you can go to holisticvetcare.com. Um, and I'll also just say that, that if you're a person who, who has strong feelings about medical cannabis for pets, uh, and or you've had experiences with your own pet with cannabis and you'd like to, um, sign a petition in support or, or write a testimonial about how, how cannabis helped your pet, you could, again, you can go to holisticvetcare.com, uh, and right at the top of the page, uh, you'll, you'll see what to do.
0: So you're needing people to sign a petition. I'll put it Please. on our website. Definitely, we'll do Thank that. You. Yeah, no worries. Um, anything, anything for the animals. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I just, I got a, um, a mug, just I got a mug the other day. You know, and and it said, I don't care who dies in the movies as long as the dog lives. <laughs> That's my motto.
1: <laughs> there you go. I agree. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Dr. Gary Richter. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks to each and every one of you for stopping by and listening to us. And for those who are going to listen later on, you know, it's a great show. You're going to enjoy it. Take care. Thanks so much.